In various Christian circles from time to time, you'll hear a particular saying that is kind of a responsive saying. It is sometimes uttered in the recognition of blessings or gifts that God has received, and it goes like this. God is good all the time. Do you know how the next line goes? <laughs> all the time, God is good. Yeah, Jack is over there like, give me the rest of it, give me the rest of it. Right? God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. The conviction that God is good is one of the most basic and essential teachings we have from Scripture. God is good all the time. In fact, we teach our young ones this song from the earliest of days. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. In our best days, we remember that truth, and it gives us encouragement, and it gives us fresh faith. But what about those times when life comes crashing in on us, when everything gets turned upside down, when the good days are a memory, and it just seems like one instance of bad news hits after one instance of bad news? Sometimes, to be honest, things going on in our lives have us questioning the goodness of God, right? We may not come right out and say it, but we have these suspicions in the back of our mind. And so James is writing this letter to people going through really difficult times. I mean, everything's been turned upside down. They've had to figure out a new way of life, find new jobs, new places to live because of their allegiance to Jesus. They were living in Jerusalem, and James became the pastor of that church in Jerusalem, and this great persecution hit, and they fled, literally for their lives. And so James is writing to them, trying to keep them in... Uh, keep in <laughs> trying to encourage them to keep in mind certain truths. And so you remember how this letter started out in chapter 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James tells them, what you find yourself in right now, the difficulties you're facing, this is actually a test of your faith. God is at work for certain purposes in your life. And so sometimes we think of trials as all negative, but the scripture actually casts them in positive light. Jeremiah, for example, said this, But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 139 has the guts to say this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. To have our, t our faith in Jesus Christ, our trust in him tested, is not a bad thing. That's actually one of the primary ways in which our faith and our trust in Jesus can grow. And James knows we're going to need wisdom, so he's told us, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all. If you're in the midst of a trial, life gets turned upside down, bad news is happening, and you don't know how to handle it well, James says, ask God for wisdom. He gives generously to all, and he will give it to you. And we, we learned last week that when we face trials, every trial can also be a temptation, or they can turn into a temptation, depending on our mindset and the state of our hearts. And so James told us, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. In other words, when we're in the midst of difficulties, we can't say God is trying to trip me up. He's working toward my ruin. He, he wants me to, to screw up. We can't go there. And so James now is going to turn to a couple of more reasons why we should trust in the goodness of God, even when life hits us hard. And so we're going to call our study today, Every Good 
and perfect gift. And we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. So James says, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Here he calls them beloved. He, his heart is drawn out to them. You, you see his pastor's shepherding heart here. And he says, my beloved brothers, that word brother is an inclusive word in the Greek, meaning brothers and sisters. Do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Now, anytime we hear the scriptures giving us instruction about deception, we should perk up. For example, the book of Jeremiah tells us this. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's not speaking of the organ of our hearts, as I have on this graphic here, but on the core of our being. The scripture has a very a grim diagnosis of the human condition. And it says at the core of each and every one of us is this condition in which we can easily be deceived. Cornelius Plantagen, in one of his works, said, First we deceive ourselves, and then we convince ourselves that we are not deceiving ourselves. I mean, how messed up is that, right? We can deceive ourselves because our, our hearts, the core of our, our, of our being, tells, us, tells ourselves lies, it tricks us, but we deceive ourselves, and then we convince ourselves that we're not being deceived. So when the scripture says, do not be deceived, brothers, we should perk up and figure out what is going on here. And so in the context, James is saying, when you face trials, do not deceive yourself into thinking that God is tempting you. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that God is against you, that he's working for your ruin. That is not the case. I appreciate James kind of belaboring the point for us because when we hit these trials, oftentimes we feel that way, don't we? Lord, what have I done to deserve this? Can't you pick on somebody else? You know, we may not say that out loud, but, but in our minds we, we think these things. And so James is going to give us two encouraging thoughts here. And here's the first key thought about the goodness of God. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What an amazing sentence. Let's break this down a little bit. He begins by saying, every good and every perfect gift. In my preparation for this, I looked at what some other translations said about this. Because in the original language, that first, uh, in my language, in my uh, language, my translation here, it says every good gift. It's actually a verb in the original language. And so I looked up some other translations to kind of see how it was getting at it. The NIV simply says every good and perfect gift. The International Standard Version says every generous act of giving and every perfect gift. I like the way the New American Standard Bible puts it. Every good thing given and every perfect gift, it's from above. So if you think of every good thing that you've been given in your life, every perfect gift, it's, it comes from above. And I find it interesting. Our, our culture has kind of hit on this theme that we should practice gratitude. I mean, if you look at any kind of um, kind of mental health or just self-improvement literature, it always has this idea of practicing gratitude. And, and that's certainly a good thing. But to be thankful at least implies that we have someone to be thankful to, right? If we have received something in our life and we ought to be grateful for that, then who are we thankful towards? I remember seeing on social media someone saying, I'm so thankful to the universe. <laughs> which is an interesting thing to say, and we hear more and more of that in our cultures, but someone more uh, maybe jaded or <laughs> realistic, I don't know how to put it, might say, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but the universe doesn't care. 
You think about this. If the universe is all there is, if all there is is matter, it can't care. It's, it's not a person. It's not, it's not something with feeling or intention or will. So the sun will shine down on you whether you're grateful for it or not. It doesn't care. In fact, if you pass away today, the sun's going to continue doing its thing tomorrow. That rock outside doesn't care if you're grateful or not. And so we have, and we want to cultivate a sense of gratitude, but it, it kind of raises the question, where does this sense of gratitude come from? Those times when you get kind of just overwhelmed with, with joy at blessings in your life and gifts in your life, the good things that are going on that you see, what's welling up in you? What does that tell you? James points it out for us. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. That's an interesting phrase there, the Father of lights. He's, he's kind of echoing back to the book of Genesis when God said, let there be light, and then God set the lights in the sky to serve as signs and for seasons and to give light to the earth. And so James says, the Father of lights, that's where these come from. And I find it really interesting that he doesn't say they come down from the creator of lights. Oh, that, that would have been theologically accurate to say. He doesn't even say it comes down from, from the Lord or the God of lights, which, again, would have been theologically accurate to say. He says it comes down from the Father of lights. James is taking this idea that he got from his brother Jesus, that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is to become our God and Father as well. And in fact, in his classic work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer said this, he said, Father is the Christian name for God. Jesus instructs us to call the Creator and the God of all things and the Lord of lights our own Father. Packer goes on to say, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So James, in saying that these good and perfect gifts are coming down from the Father of lights, he's, he's reminding us, this creator God who is good, and he is for us, and he is our Father. And it's interesting, in the original language, that verb coming down, it's in the continuous action. It's a participle. It just keeps coming down. Every good and perfect gift keeps coming down. It's like God, it's, it's his nature to shower us with blessings and with gifts. And then James says about this father of lights that there is no variation or shadow due to change. If you're ever out on a starlit night and you look up, you see the stars twinkling and it seems like they, they shift a little bit. Certainly the sun moves all the time. It rises in the morning and it sets at night and throughout the day it lengthens and shortens and lengthens shadows again. In contrast to those lights, the father of lights doesn't change. If everything in this world looks like it's in motion, the one thing you can count on, the one thing you can take to the bank is that the father of lights doesn't change. What is James saying? God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Here's a second key thought about the goodness of God that James wants to highlight for us and for us to reflect on and to meditate on and to chew in our minds. In verse 18, he says this, Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is a dense sentence here. We're going to unpack it. Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So let's just break it down a little bit. What does he mean here by the word of truth? If someone were to ask you, what does James mean when he speaks of the word of truth, what would you say? And if you were to say, I know, the word of truth is the scriptures, isn't it? You wouldn't be wrong. (laughs) When James is writing, there's no New Testament at this time. There is the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But he's thinking specifically of something more on target. And some of the other writers of the New Testament flesh this out as well. For example, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, says this, in him that is in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Here, the word of truth is specifically described as the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus. And again, in the book of Colossians, Paul writes and reminds them of the hope that is laid up in heaven for Christians. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So this word of truth is simply the good news about Jesus Christ. And so James tells us of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth. And you may remember, if, if your, your mind was in tune to what we just read in the scriptures, in verse 15, James used that phrase bringing forth in that passage. He says, Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this power of sin and darkness is at work in us. His desire is to bring forth death. But James says God is at work something else. The word of truth brings us forth. It, it, it births us. That's the language of the New Testament. Remember what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That phrase, born again, can literally be translated born from above. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, one cannot see the kingdom of God. And so James tells us in in verse 18 how this comes about. He says, of his own will, that is, of God's decision, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now stop and think about this for a moment. This should, in a sense, kind of blow us away. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, You are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ because God's decision to bring you life, to bring you forth, as James says, to cause you to be born again. In fact, John the Apostle, in his opening statement in the gospel that bears his name, said this, to all who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here, John highlights the fact that God births new believers in Christ. Or how about the Apostle Peter? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Before, we were without hope. We were without God and without hope in this world. But God, because of a decision that he made, caused us to be born again. This is something that God himself does by an act of of creation, of, of miracle. Just like you can't birth yourself physically, you can't birth yourself spiritually. This is a grace that is given to you. And so back to James, he says, 
God has done this. Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does he mean by this? Why does he think this would bring encouragement to those struggling to follow Jesus in that first century? And why does he think that would bring encouragement to us as well? Well, that phrase, the first fruits, was simply a phrase that we're used to describe literally the first fruits of a harvest, which is a time of celebration. It was a time of worship and thanksgiving to God because it was the kind of the down payment or, or something to give you hope for the, the harvest to come. And so when James says, we are the first fruits, who is he referring to here? Well, one option is he's referring to those first Jewish Christians. Think about this, how this would have been a great encouragement to them. Remember, they've had their world turned upside down for simply professing their allegiance to Jesus, believing that he's the true king of the world, and now they're scattered everywhere. And if they are the first fruits of all his creatures, of all God's creatures, then that means that they are literally the first ones to come to Christ and more coming behind them. Behind them. And that would be a great encouragement to think that God himself is at work, even in the midst of this trial, even in the midst of this persecution, birthing new followers of the Lord Jesus. And if that's the case, they are, in a sense, kind of on display for the world to see. Paul had this in mind, I think, when he wrote these words to Timothy. He said, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, or we might say as the first fruit, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul was very conscious of the fact that he himself was not just simply an example, but he was the foremost of sinners, and in, in Christ God had mercy on him. And the reason why is because God wanted to display Paul to other people and said, look, if God can save someone like Paul, then he can certainly bring you into a state of salvation with him as well. So that's one option. James might be referring to we as the Jewish Christians who believed first in Christ, but he might also be speaking more generally of, of all Christians. And if that's the case, then all Christians who are birthed into new life in Christ become the first fruits of what is to come. And of course, you know, having been here at Mercy Hill Church and studying this with, a, with us, Jesus spoke of the renewal of all things. That is the kingdom of heaven that is to come. The new creation of the new heavens and new earth. And so James wants them to be encouraged. In the midst of their trials and temptations, not to think that God is working for their ruin, but he's actually at work in them to make them more like Christ, to cause them to endure and to deepen. And he wants to remind them and root them in the goodness of God. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. So what I want us to do, just in our remaining time together, is to take what James has said and apply it to our lives in three very specific ways. You know, if it is the case that every good and perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights is given to us, then let's practice gratitude, not just simply for mental health or spiritual health, but let's do it because we have a Heavenly Father who lavishes us with good gifts. And I want to highlight just three of those very good gifts He has given. First one, by an act of His will, God has created you. God has given you life by an act of his decision, by an act of his will, he said, I want to bring you into existence. You are a special creation. You don't have to be here. You're not absolutely essential. God is absolutely essential, but you're not. But 
You have been brought into existence because God willed to bring you into existence, to stamp his image upon you, to invite you into relationship with him. This is simply amazing when we stop and think about it. The Apostle Paul, when he stood up in Athens, speaking to the philosophers there, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He doesn't use the language of James here, but he's emphasizing the goodness of God and the generosity of God. And so, what would it change in your life if you were to think yourself an act of God? How would that rearrange your thinking? How would that change the way you go about your day? How would that root you in something deeper than just kind of the seemingly haphazard events that are going on in your life? How would that how would that root you into a living hope that God is actually for you and wants your best? So that's just one example there. By an act of, of his will, God has created you. But here's another. By an act of his will, God has given you the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Where would you be if you did not have Jesus? Where would you be if you had never heard the beautiful name of Jesus? and all that God has done for us in Christ. God, by his act of his will, has, has given Christ to us. And if he's given Christ to us, the greatest gift, then all other gifts flow from that. Listen to how Paul puts it in the book of Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's something that James is trying to communicate with his readers as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then Paul goes on to emphasize, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, those early followers of Jesus were going through it, or distress, they certainly were feeling it, or persecution, that's a big contender, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing thought. God has not only created you, but he's giving you the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And with him all things. In fact, Paul emphasizes this in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. This, this church was a, was a wealthy church in comparison, and they had all kinds of gifts, and, and, and um, they, they tended to boast in these things. In fact, one of the things they boasted about was which Christian leader they liked the best. So some were saying Paul, some were saying Apollos, some were saying Cephas, that is Peter. They had kind of little cheering squads, and he's like, don't, don't go there. This has all been given to you, all these leaders. In fact, God has given you the world. He's given you life, death, the present, the future. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So God has created you by an act of the will. He has also, by an act of that same will, given you the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a great one as well. By an act of his will, of his will God is giving you his kingdom. Jesus, at one point in the Gospel of Luke, tells his followers this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
in their thinking, in their understanding, the kingdom was the future to come in which God ruled this world, subdued all evil, and there would be no more harm, there'd be no more death, there'd be no more suffering. Everything would be exactly the way it's supposed to be. Love flourishes here in the kingdom. And so Jesus says, and you, when you follow me, no matter how difficult it comes, don't fear, because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So no wonder Jesus told his followers in the church of Smyrna, and you find this in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, these instructions. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the goodness of God knows no bounds. He's given you life. He's given you new life in Christ. He's given you Jesus. He's given you a guaranteed future in the kingdom. And so the question is, how often, my friends, are you practicing gratitude? How are you cultivating this in your life? I know some Christians have found it really helpful just to make it a a part of their daily routine to carve out some time and just simply to write down three or five or ten things that they are conscious of blessings, things that God has given them that day. I've tried doing this. I'm not a writer-down kind of thing. I signed my name the first time the other day with a pen. I can't remember how long. I I just don't write things anymore. I type and I text and I use my computer and all that. I can't even read my own handwriting. It was pathetic. But you don't have to write it down to cultivate that sense of gratitude for the goodness of God in your life. Ideally, what this teaching about the goodness of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and all that we talked about today should do is is to cause gratitude to spring up spontaneously. We don't need to be told that we should be grateful. We simply are grateful. But sometimes it does help to sit down and just consciously think through all the blessings we sang this earlier. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. My friends, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good.